0: This is all the cool parts number 16 for July 22nd, 2010. Welcome to All The Cool Parts, number 16. I'm your host, Anthony Joseph Landman. This week on All The Cool Parts, I interview multi-talented guitarist Burt Lambs, and we both discuss his 2008 CD of the music of Johann Sebastian Bach called Nascent. Cool Parts listeners, we are here with guitarist Bert Lambs, uh, solo guitarist, also member of the California Guitar Trio. Welcome, Bert. Hi, Tony. Thank you for having me. Uh, Thanks so much for coming on. It's awesome to have you on. Um, And uh, I thought I would start by just telling a little story of the first time I saw you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Actually, the first time I saw you was in 1995. um, I was, I think, barely 20 years old, and um, I had never taken a trip by myself anywhere. This is I, I I grew up in Houston, Texas, and this is when I was still living in Houston, Texas. Yeah, and uh, I was a, you know, as a teenager, uh, early adult, I was really, really into, you know, prog rock. And uh, one of my favorite bands was King Crimson. And I was at that uh, age group where, you know, when King Crimson was touring a lot in the 70s and 80s, I was too young. I was a little kid. Mm -hmm. And um, so when they reunited in the early 90s, I was very excited because I was like, oh, I finally get to see King Crimson. Mm -hmm. And um, so I took a trip to San Francisco uh, to see King Crimson because actually on that tour... On the initial leg of that tour, that was actually one of the closest places that they played, Mm -hmm. believe it or not, to to Texas. So anyway, um, I went out there, and you guys, the California Guitar Trio, opened for them on that show. Yeah. And uh, so that was the first time I saw you guys, the first time I saw you. And uh, among the classical pieces that you guys played was you did the Prelude Circulation, the BWV-998. Prelude. Yeah. Yeah. And also the Bach Toccata and Fugue in D minor.
1: Toccata and Fugue. Yes.
0: And uh man, I was blown away. I mean, this was be- this was before uh I went to music school. This is before mm-hmm. I studied classical guitar and this before I knew much at all about classical music. But um uh I was just blown away by this performance and um, mm-hmm. you know, keep this on the down low but i kind of liked it more than the king crimson (laughs) Uh, not that i didn't like the king crimson i did a lot but um but uh this had to be among one of your earliest performances with them or am i wrong uh
1: you know i can't quite recall in time uh, which you know which place it had in the in the Order of all the the concerts of, of uh, yeah, of that. we actually did 130 concerts with opening for Crimson. So oh, wow. for me, it's hard to keep track. There, it's kind of one blur. There are some highlights, and but a lot of the concerts were similar places, you know, big theaters. So so that kind of tends to become a blur in my memory. I do remember the first one we did, and I think the one you heard may have been uh, in the first kind of the first part of that King Crimson tour in nine, in 95, because it, it went two years. It went uh, through 95 and 96. So I think that was in the beginning of the tour. And our first one was somewhere, uh, I believe somewhere in Ohio or something. And uh, we we came on stage and, you know, people don't want to see opening acts. Opening acts, you know, they, they came there to see King Crimson. King Crimson hadn't performed in like 13 years. Yeah. Or, People were waiting for them. And then on come these three guys with acoustic guitars. And I remember the first one we did in the States here, we, we walked on stage, the three of us, uh, and we plugged our guitars in. And some guy yelled really loud, like, play one song and get off stage. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but for some reason, it kind of fired us up. We we had been we had been uh, playing like for five weeks already like, uh-huh. in Europe. We just came from Europe, so we we were kind of you know we were pretty strong uh, together, you know. So we just I think we just ripped that night, and and uh, uh, people were on their feet afterwards. And it was really a great, uh, a great experience to, uh, to yeah. go from you know nobody wants to hear you when they're <laughs> about to throw things at you too they're all cheer, cheering cheering in on their
0: feet. So that was, it was a nice nice victory moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, um I think uh you know, looking back in hindsight, um I think uh, Robert Fripp uh for the listeners um uh, he's the guitarist from King Crimson. Um I think he was smart. I was think he was very smart in um having you guys open because like you said, you know, Uh, you got these fans that are coming that haven't seen King Crimson forever Mm -hmm. and that's they're going to the theater and you know when they get there that's all they want to see they don't want to see an opening act so you know um, I think giving them you guys which was so uh, I think uh, unexpected and so different Mm -hmm. from what Crimson was doing um, yeah I think that was very smart on his part
1: well you know I'm not really sure if that was the real motivation behind it because uh I, my my sense always was that Robert really, uh, as a a friend and and a former teacher or or guitar instructor of us, that he really, uh, kind of out of out of the goodness of his heart was trying to help us, you know, and give us give us an opportunity to play. I think I always felt that was the first motivation Uh there. And I actually, that's interesting that you say that because I never really thought of it that way, you know, in terms of him. You know, thinking or yeah, it would fit in their set because it wasn't really needed for them. You know, there are other shows that I've seen and they never have opening acts ever. Right. So, yeah. yeah. So that was cool.
0: Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, you, that you mentioned um, Fripp as a kind of mentor and a teacher. That, mm-hmm. that will bring me into kind of asking you some questions about. Your background and your past and sort of mm-hmm. what uh what led you on the path that um you know brought you to where you are today so yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah. first
1: first of all uh, Robert Fripp's not a teacher he, he he doesn't like people calling him a teacher a teacher is too big of a thing he he likes to be uh, called an uh, an instructor or a mentor or you know someone who has but he's not a teacher he doesn't want to be called a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I started out uh, as a teenager playing guitar uh, in Belgium. I lived in Belgium at the time. Uh-huh. I played. Uh, I bought myself a, an electric guitar and uh, taught myself how to play by emulating uh, mostly blues uh, electric blues guitarists. Uh, mostly major influences for me were uh, John Fogerty on the Creedence Clearwater Revival the long guitar, the long drawn-out guitar solos on Suzy Q. And I heard it through the grapevine, were the two, actually the two songs that taught me how to play basic riffs on guitar. Mm-hmm. And uh, from there, uh, <clears throat> I finished high school, and from there, I, you know, I joined a band, local band and played
2: and,
1: and all that, and jammed with local friends, performed as well a little bit, but, uh When I finished high school, I wanted to continue in music. Most of my friends from high school went on to college and all that, and uh, I wanted to play music. So the only way for me to do that was to go, either go to the United States to Berkeley or something, you know, to study music, or stay in Belgium, pick up uh, classical guitar, and start studying classical music because we had no nothing like Berkeley in. in uh, Belgium and maybe that turned out to be an advantage for me because I really enjoyed studying the classical repertoire I, I just jumped in it straight away straight away after high school Yeah,
2: and, uh, yeah I studied uh...
1: classical guitar for like five years very mm-hmm. intensively with some great teachers I had uh, Monique Vigneron which is a great teacher and also uh, uh, Alfred, Albert Sunderman who is a, a student of Segovia he studied with Segovia himself, so it's kind of a real honor to have those people, you know, that had a direct a direct contact with such a great mm-hmm. uh, you know, musician, so Segovia, and to have that direct direct contact and, and influence from that. And then from there, uh, I became a guitar teacher in Belgium. I, I still played on this, I played a lot with my bands and stuff, but uh, I was mainly teaching for about seven, eight years, and then i came in touch with uh, i heard about these courses that were held in uh, west virginia called guitar craft and uh, i applied for one of these courses to make a long story short and and just went up to west virginia and that just kind of gave me a jolt into a different direction Uh, you know to just study again and to pick up something just go into a total new direction
0: yeah. Right. Now, these, um, these Guitar Craft courses, of course, were um, designed by Robert Fripp. hmm And uh, can you kind of describe what goes on at uh, one of these courses?
1: Well, it's kind of like I have to describe to you, say you've never eaten a, a cheesecake before, and I have to describe to you what, what does a cheesecake tastes <laughs> like uh i can't really describe it it's one of these things that uh you had to be there if you try to describe it it sounds a little crazy sometimes or it sounds you know like well yeah there's no connection there but i'll, I'll give it a try uh, okay basically it was you the introductory courses were about 5 days and uh i showed up there you know not knowing what to expect and i brought my tape recorder with me because I wanted to record everything they said so I could take it home and listen to it later because English is not my native language. And in those days, I didn't speak English that well, uh, as well as now. Anyway, uh, the, the courses were very intense. They were not very theoretical at all. It was a very down-to-earth, practical approach of uh, uh, kind of like like an oral tradition of showing something, experiencing something, learning it, assimilating okay. it, passing it on to someone else, rather than writing something on a piece of paper on or on a board in front of a classroom. So it was totally, I mean, the first meeting we had with guitars was everybody in the same room in a big circle, uh, and we, we were playing. We started playing right away. The first thing we did was play. Robert's first instruction to the group of guitar players is this, this first group that was sitting in the circle and had no idea what was going on he said when ready begin to play that was his instruction <laughs> so we all started playing <laughs> all together wow uh, and it, it, it i think it lasted for about an hour uh, he just let us play and we started after you know after everybody's noodling started stopping we had people kind of tuned into each other a little bit and you c- could kind of hear there is some Something happening. People are listening to each other. And that's where we started from, from that uh, kind of a group energy thing. And we would do a, another example is we would do morning relaxation sittings. The first thing in the morning we do is get up and do a half hour uh, relaxation uh, or morning sitting. It's basically you're sitting on the floor and being quiet before breakfast. So for an outsider, it's like, well, is this, what is this, a bunch of, you know, bunch of weirdos? meditation or whatever but it was very very practical and very uh, direct Uh, after that week I was so inspired I I mean I just practiced I I went home and practiced for six months at home practiced like five six hours a day and went back to another course as soon as I could and and very soon after that I was invited uh, to join a performance team uh, that Robert uh, decided to go on the road with some of the students and call it the League of Crafty Guitarists.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that was a, that was also a very special time where we'd, we'd go. That was actually part, another, another example of the direct uh, approach that he had was it, he announced a six-week performance course. It was in England. So I went to that course. He usually wouldn't say much about what was going to go go on during those courses or what was going to happen. So I showed up there thinking, okay, we're going to learn about performance and, you know, we'll work in the group and whatever. But the next day, we were all going on a bus and we traveled for six weeks and uh, played played performance venues all over Europe and even went to Israel as well. So that performance course was just basically taking us on the road <laughs> And experiencing it firsthand, what it's like. Right. I guess there's amazing. no. I guess it's... there's no
0: better way to learn performance than that. Exactly.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then there was the courses. You know, where the it was a total opposite. Where we there was a long term courses too. There was one of two months. It was called the level three course, where we would basically just with a group of 15, 20 guitars, we would live in a house in England in Robert's house. And the course was about practicing, how to practice. So there was no, nothing happened. I mean, there was no outside performances or whatever. We just practiced. That was tough. That was very tough. But it was also very good uh, learning experience, you know, how to keep going and how you can be supported you know, with a group of people, how much yeah. more inspiring it is to, to feed off, you know, inspiration and... and uh, a lot of practical work was done in the house. To you know, between things, you know, we'd, uh, we'd, it wasn't like there was a staff of people taking care of us. We, the, the people on the course were the staff of the course as well. We would, we would uh, make our own meals. Someone would be, we would be taking turns making meals, uh, which was a big deal, you know, making making three or two or three meals a day for fifteen twenty people. Uh, clean toilets, clean <laughs> house. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff going on. It's, it's wow, it guitar.
0: sounds like um, guitar yeah. boot camp or something.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah. And Robert used to say, you know, the uh, attention, the quality spreads. You know, if you pay attention to one small thing, you know, uh, practical thing, be it, you know, peeling onions or whatever, it will spread to your your guitar playing. Mm-hmm. There was one guy there at the course who asked uh, Robert how how could he improve his playing. He wanted to play faster. So he couldn't play fast or something. And he said, "How can I, you know, how can I do? How can I obtain this?" And uh, Robert went took up took a look, look at his room upstairs, and he said, "Well, uh, you could start with maybe with making your bed in the morning." <laughs> <laughs> So it was. It was that was kind of the the spirit of things a little bit. Uh, it was a very amazing time, and I feel really privileged that was part of that because uh, Robert really shared his experience, you know, of thirty years plus as a musician, professional musician on the road uh, with us, rather than being on tour with some band, you know, which he could have done as well.
0: Yeah, so
1: that that period ended now, so he's not doing those courses anymore. Uh, guitar craft ceased uh, to exist in the meantime but there's a lot of uh, activity going on with the people that were used to be involved in guitar craft and, and uh, there's a lot of groups of people that perform and have taken it a step further now but we're not calling it guitar craft anymore
0: oh so, uh, yeah so what's is there an extension of guitar craft or
1: oh yes uh i mean it's a little bit like the California Guitar Trio. We are, in a way, an extension of, you know, or a continuation rather of of that guitar crafting that lasted 25 years and is now finished.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but also, other people are doing things now that, you know, are, you know, born within that time, you know, that we, we all met together. There's a group in Seattle called the Seattle Circle, and uh, they're an amazing group of guitarists that all moved. From all over the place, they moved to to Seattle and they all have their regular day jobs or whatever. But they meet once or twice a week to rehearse and they perform every week. They have seasonal performances like they perform in a church there for a period of three months on a weekly basis. And it's a whole thing where they sit and surround the audience. There's about 12 guitars surrounding the audience. The audience sits in the middle in the church. It's acoustic. And uh, they have a, like a sort of a light show going on as well. And it's a really, really neat thing. And it's building up a lot of uh, interest as well. So, uh, and they're doing their own thing, you know. They're, yeah. It's not uh, it's this Robert Free School or something. It's their own. They took on their own, uh, its own life, as to speak.
0: Okay. Yes, yeah, Seattle Circle. So I will check that out. And um, yes. uh, I urged all the listeners to check that out as well. Uh, but one thing I wanted to to kind of, I don't know, point out is that um, if you're not, you know, if you're not a guitarist, you're not used to going through a sort of formal guitar education, um, the, you know, this guitar craft, it's coming from such a different angle, I guess, um, mm-hmm. than most, you know, especially when you go the classical route, which mm-hmm. I also studied, uh, classical guitar and I mean really in that tradition you know you're by yourself I mean you're in your little room for hours yeah. a day and um, yeah. you're performing by yourself there's there's no collaboration with uh, anybody else mm-hmm. and this seems mm-hmm. like it's a total opposite almost it, of that
1: yeah it, I mean it, it. it's the two sides you know because there was a lot of the time I would say even most of the time was just spent in a similar way where there was a lot of practicing going on on the courses. You know, some of the courses were about practice, so we would be practicing all day. I, uh, but, you know, then there was the, the exciting, more exciting parts of going out on the road or or doing little projects or recording projects or whatever. And out of that actually kind of came the, came the California Guitar Trio because the three of us were part of this team called the League of Crafty Guitarists that went on the road with Robert and uh, during the last tour uh, of the league, Robert suggested that we we continue with a couple people and Paul and Hideo and I just got together in LA and we we just started playing little coffee. We just wanted to keep playing and performing and working together, rather than you know,
2: because
1: mm-hmm. we had something going. So we yeah. kind of built on that. We kind of built on that momentum that we had already with the league. To, to continue with the three of us, and it it turned out it was a total different uh, ball game because we we started from we started playing L.A., you know, in little coffee shops and just out anywhere we could play, and uh, but uh, things took up fa- took off fairly fast, I would say.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that, so all of that um, past experience, know your your classical guitar study. Uh, your League of Crafty Guitarists and um, California Guitar Trio um, I think kind of all combined to make this album that we're going to talk about today nascent um, kind of possible. So this is an album of uh, all music by Johann Sebastian Bach (laughs) and uh, it's all played on steel string guitar with, I think, at least for the most part, with a pick right uh, everything's played with epic yeah, yeah yeah so this is like i've uh at least to my knowledge i've never heard these pieces played in this way well me neither <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that's what i was going to ask you so there's it. no you know you're you're choosing these pieces you're approaching these pieces doing the transcriptions for these pieces and you have no reference for these pieces right well,
1: The only reference I had was listening to some of the arrangements that were done for uh, lute. Uh, There's a a guy in Canada called Nigel North. Yeah, I uh, I studied lute. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: I studied lute with Nigel for three years. (laughs) Oh
1: my gosh! Wow, aren't you lucky? (laughs) I was very uh, lucky. Yes. I I heard his stuff and I felt discouraged. I was like, boy, there's no way (laughs) in hell that I can do anything like that on steel string guitar because the way he plays the arrangement the arrangements that he plays are a little richer too. He plays, you know, he plays with added bass strings and all that. And uh-huh. It's such a beautiful tone on the instrument. But then when I started playing it on steel string, it has such a different quality of sound. It was almost a little bit like playing it on a harpsichord or something. So uh, I figured well, well, hell, why not? We'll we'll take this in. And- it it's just going to be different.
0: <laughs> yeah, and that's that's one thing that I was going to point out, the sound. And uh the first time I heard this sound, this almost harpsichord sound was, you know, from the California Guitar Trio recording of the Toccata and Fugue in D minor. Mm-hmm. You know, that recording, it sounds like this giant uh awesome sounding harpsichord that never existed, yeah. yes. you know. Um uh, yeah. and uh so
1: one thing I have to tell you about all these arrangements of these pieces on nascent is that you know there is a lot of uh, a lot of Bach pieces out there and they're arranged for guitar. Most of them are arranged by Andres Segovia, and what happened to those arrangements is they're they're arranged for a different tuning for the standard guitar tuning. I use uh, the tuning that we learned on Guitar Craft courses, which is uh, basically a tuning in fifths, like a shallow or a viola, or a violin. So, wow, basically, I, didn't know that. I can I can just play the pieces as they are on the guitar, as if my guitar was a violin or a cello, uh, because the tuning is the same. Um, <clears throat> so, what I like about these arrangements is that they are not really arrangements. I I was able to play the music as Bach wrote the music, rather than uh, what Segovia did, uh, which you know was great but I didn't like it personally. He was he added chords and he made a lot of the pieces much more uh, the, the linear voices oftentimes were gone He would uh, add because he he made it more in chunks of chords and added chords and made it more rich sounding and uh, it's really hard that way to to find the, the continuum of the melodies and, and the phrases and stuff so I was able to do that just because I was able to just play the arrangement, uh, the the music as it was, as it was written originally.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm really glad you stayed close to the original versions because what you're talking about, the Andres Segovia versions in particular, came from that kind of old 19th century tradition that kind of started with Busoni and, and all these mm-hmm. guys where they would take... Uh, you know, these Bach pieces and just fill them out with all kinds of added counterpoint and, uh, and added harmony. And I mean, you can hear like, uh, the most blown out versions, like the Leopold Stokowski, uh, orchestral versions of Bach and all this stuff that I think to our modern ears are more sort of historically informed ears can kind of sound really sort of ridiculously overblown. Yeah. Uh, at times and um, so uh, and I didn't know that about the guitar tuning. That was one thing I, I had no idea about this different tuning that you were using. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. So yeah, you can you can play these straight off of the original versions. You don't have to transpose the key, right?
1: Uh, no, but, but I actually ended up doing uh, transposing the key uh, for most of the pieces because what I did is to make it uh, easier to play. Okay I uh, played everything uh, I actually the guitar I used was a, f- a 14 fret to the body Martin Triple O 16 guitar which is a concert size smaller guitar but still the neck is pretty long a 14 fret neck, neck mm-hmm. with a cutaway so I uh, uh, and a lot of this music is played in first position so if you can imagine you know a, a guitar with a long neck that's hard A classical guitar is a lot easier because a classical guitar has 12 frets to the neck. So the the first position becomes easier to play. It's closer to your face. Right. Uh, So what I did to compensate that is to use, I use a capo on the second fret for the whole album. I just put a capo on the second fret.
0: (laughs) Very interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, I imagine you had to come up with a lot of creative solutions, you know, to get a, l- uh, a lot of this to work because, you know, when you're playing this on classical guitar, you know, you have all four fingers of your right hand to play different voices. Mm-hmm. And with you, you have a pick, that's it. So <laughs> I yeah. guess we-
2: Well,
1: the, the techniques that we learned from Robert too was a lot of that was... Uh, a technique that's kind of similar to what you would call a bowing technique for the for the violin players. So, and we call it alternate picking. So, it's a up and down and up and down stroke
2: mm-hmm. on
1: on one string or on two strings. And uh, that was one of the basic principles of playing playing with a pick that we learned from Robert. Is just this up and down and alternate picking stroke strokes. And that really helped me uh, get through this material because I was able to play a lot of the arpeggios that are in there that's that are super fast <laughs> uh, right in the, in the uh the chaconne, the last piece on the album for instance there's some sections in there that are really fast and that that technique really helped me a lot to, to get through that
0: right right okay well with that let's uh let's get on to the music sounds good okay so i think we're going to start with uh Excerpt number one, which is from the Violin Partita number 3 in E Major, BWV 1006. And um, this is, you know, one of those pieces that every guitar, well, every classical guitarist plays. It's a very famous, um, you know, many transcriptions for many other instruments uh, and even ensembles. I think there was even a, uh, I don't know chorale or something with this Mm -hmm. in it Um, but uh, yeah uh, I don't know anything you want to say about this track well you know frankly I'd have to hear again because I'm getting
1: confused there's so many preludes there and I I you know, this is a few years ago, so right now if you tell me prelude from Shallow Sweet Five, I
2: have no idea which one that is. <laughs> uh,
1: if you could sing it for me, I will <laughs> I will be glad to <laughs> Okay,
0: uh let's see. Uh I'll try to sing it. Okay, you ready? Yeah. Okay, you ready? I'm gonna sing it. Okay. Da 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 da. Well done. Oh, thank you. I wanted to ask you just sort of generally, um, you know, how you chose all these pieces. Just, I mean, was it just like, uh, because you liked them or was it a specific reason or that you chose these or?
1: Well, uh, I started just kind of playing through the repertoire and uh, I had these two books. Uh, one was a book with all the shallow suites and the other one was all a book with all the violin partitas and uh, violin suites. And I kind of started working through the pieces a little bit, and it, it's very over, it was totally overwhelming. I was like, oh my God, you know, how how to make, you, how to get this in my practice. I had started with the Prelude from the Shallow Suite 1, which I, I, I could play that and perform that perfectly. And then I also worked on the Chaconne, and I play, performed that. Actually, I performed that piece with the League of Crafty <laughs> Guitarists several times as well. Robert was actually the first one who encouraged me to play this stuff in public uh, during the performances. So, those two pieces were in my repertoire, but I didn't really know how am I going to take this further. And just, I gave it some thought, having those books and knowing that I wanted to play that repertoire, rather than doing it systematically, what most You know, if you look at Nigel North, so they would take the shallow suite number one, play the whole shallow suite number one, add the second one, and so on and so on. Each suite has three, I think three or five, uh, can't remember right, five little sections, you know. Uh, I wanted to have an overview of everything on one CD. So the, the logic reasonable thing to do was just to pick mostly preludes. If you look at the CD, there is, uh, uh, out of the 14 pieces, uh, I believe eight or seven of them are preludes. Right. The other ones are kind of just also kind of preludes. Uh, there is a, a violin partita prelude, there is a chaconne, which is not a prelude, but it, it has that same feel as a prelude, in a way, uh, when it starts, but then it kind of goes into a sort of a fugue or variation form. Uh, and then I, I picked a few pieces to add on to the the prelude section that I already had. And uh, in fact, I also added a whole partita, the first uh, the, the partita number one for violin. I played mm-hmm. all the sections from that. As, as you can see, there's five or six uh, uh, sections of that. So I think it was a good overview. It's mostly preludes, one violin partita. And the Schacon in the end, which is you know kind of a a big milestone work uh, for any instrument to tackle. It's like the ultimate,
0: uh,
1: most beautiful piece of music that you. Yeah. So
0: yeah. So so I'll. So we'll. uh, I'll play. That's the last excerpt that I'm going to play, and so we'll talk more about that um, when we get to that excerpt. But definitely, yeah, that is one of those. Uh, one of those pieces that, uh, you know, people kind of measure themselves with. But
1: well, the, the only thing that's bad about make, making that choice is, you know, I could have probably done, done a series of uh, CDs, you know, tackling things, you know, like Nigel Northwood or so or Julian Breen. just take, uh, tackle the repertoire one by one and make a series of five or six CDs with everything but I kind of wanted to do it all kind of all in once to give a bit of an overview and maybe make it more accessible as well. So, uh in a way I'm screwed now because what <laughs> I can't I can't continue the project. That's it. So I I'll have to find something totally different for my uh next solo CD. <laughs> I don't know what that's going to be.
0: <laughs> okay, all right. Well, um so let's okay, so the second uh excerpt that I'm going to play is from the uh, – it's another prelude, the prelude to the uh, cello suite number three in C major, BWV uh, 1009. And um, uh, I know that you have no idea what uh, the excerpt <laughs> I'm going to play. So I, I – I, sorry for that. I mean, listeners, you know, when you hear the podcast, you know, you'll hear these musical excerpts come. But when we're doing the interview, I have no way to really – play the excerpts for Burt so um, is that the
1: one in E E flat Mm -hmm. E flat major
0: Uh, this one is from the C major the cello suite number three in C major
1: yeah Yeah. and
0: then the part I have is well one of the uh, things that I think is uh, really cool uh, about this excerpt and about this part of the piece mm-hmm. is this very very long section where you have this um, <clears throat> excuse me this very long pedal um, low mm-hmm. pedal um, and so all this material sort of moving uh, underneath this or over I guess this this low yeah. pedal note. Okay, uh, so the next excerpt that I'm going to play is the prelude, uh, uh, yeah, another prelude. I am just really going in the the order of CD Mm -hmm. here. But this is the um, prelude to the cello suite number 5 in C minor, BWV 1011. And the prelude to this piece is unusual because it's kind of split into two parts. So the first half is like a normal... kind of like a normal prelude, what you would get. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the second half leads directly into this fugue. And uh, so in this version, um, you know, you hear closer to what you would get on cello. Now you hear a lot of the counterpoint is a more implied counterpoint. Um, Rather than um, kind of on a lot of the versions you would hear on guitar, like the lute transcriptions, you have a lot of that implied counterpoint kind of added in, so it's not so implied anymore, it's kind of there, but um, here, yeah, it's really close to the original version, and um, how was it playing this, this it's a really complicated fugue? Well, it's not that complicated, but the thing that I really found so interesting
1: about it, this is how he wrote it, that I played it, you know, I, I did transpose it, I think I played it a fifth up or something like that, I forget it now, I think I played it in uh, G minor or in A minor, actually A minor. But that aside, it's the that fugue section that you're talking about. is really interesting because it's he imply. You know, normally when you have a fugue, you have one voice, and the line continues. You have a second voice, a, a total independent voice from the first one that comes in with the same kind of motif, and then it goes somewhere, and they both keep going, and then eventually a third or even a fourth can come in. This is what happens in this piece, but you can imagine on one instrument, on a on a four string instrument tuned in fifth, you cannot uh, play two or three. M- maybe you can play two, but not three right. complete independent voices. Voices that way. So the way he works around it is writing a fugue with implied uh, uh, voicings. So it's it's you have to have a sort of it works on the imagination. It's kind of like seeing, uh, reading Alice in Wonderland or something. It's uh, has this, or, or uh, Escher paintings, you know, where you see uh-huh. the stairs going up and around, and it's all uh, illusion. And he kind of does that, and it's 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 a very cool experience. It's hard to talk about it, but it, yeah. so if you analyze it, you would see exactly the same kind of thing, like you would see the, the Escher painting, where, you know, the line just stops there, but in your head... It continues because exactly. it's very suggestive.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I've thought about this a lot, you know, like how does this work? Because um, uh, with this implied counterpoint, you know, in in film, in filmmaking, you know, there's this concept they have called a persistence of vision, which is like, um, you know, when you're watching a film, you have 24 still pictures going by every mm-hmm. second. But because your in your mind holds on to the picture a little bit longer than it's actually seen, mm-hmm. it, you know, it, it appears as though the, the picture is moving. Right. That's what makes it possible. That's why a film doesn't look like a bunch of right. um, a right. bunch of, you know, jerky still pictures going by. And I think the same principle works. In music, you know this persistence of hearing. I guess you know where where, uh, Bach can just barely hint at you know uh, bass lines and inner voices and all this stuff, and then these things continue in our minds. Mm -hmm. You know that's how it. I think how, how it works.
1: That's a very interesting analogy because you know he could have written the whole parts out and and you know like if you listen to some of the works that he did, like the Richard Carey for harpsichord. Uh, three, he did a three-voice fugue, Richard Carré, and also a six-part. And in the, if you look at the scores of those pieces, they're completely all the voices continue independently all the time. Uh, in this case, though, he he doesn't do it because of the limitation of the instrument, probably, or probably probably enjoyed the challenge of of doing it this right. way.
0: Okay, so the next series of excerpts are all going to come from the violin partita number no. one in B minor, BWV 1002. And um, uh, this is the, the only complete suite that you've decided to record on the album. Um, mm-hmm. So all the parts. Uh, and we're going to start with the, the prelude. Uh, one interesting aside I wanted to kind of uh, give on the piece. Is that um after Bach's death, well, as uh, along with all of his other music, really, uh, after his death, it was pretty much totally forgotten um and this piece was not discovered until over a hundred years later it was discovered in St. Petersburg, Russia, under a pile of old music about to be used as wrapping paper. Oh my
2: gosh <laughs> I didn't <even> know that. <laughs>
0: yeah, so um, I guess it's lucky for all of us that it wasn't used for a Christmas present. Uh, so anyway uh, the prelude so uh, I guess is talking about the whole thing um, was there a reason that you chose this particular piece to do the whole thing well I
1: looked at all of them a little bit and and just kind of this one just kind of took off I I just like that prelude a lot and for me basically it's just something that Resonates, and it was the first one. The first one you open the book, there it is, the first one. And there's always something about the first one, so I picked that one.
0: Mm-hmm. It seems to work really well for you know your your chosen instrument. I mean, technically. So I don't know if that happens. absolutely. To do with, it's yeah. like
1: it's written for the guitar. I mean, that first prelude just feels so it feels so natural playing that on the on the guitar. Uh, it is the scores are of the of those. Uh, violin partita preludes or suites uh, are sometimes scary to look at because they're full of 30 second notes and 64th notes and really fast notes but basically all they are is embellishments so still you have to go in and analyze it in a rhythmical way so it, you can you know exactly it's in 2 or in 4 and it, it's been interesting to see how how that works uh, it took a lot of patience and a lot of sitting down and tapping uh just to get a to to get the basic feel of the piece going, and then uh, I heard a great version of of all these partitas and suites by a Belgian uh, violin player named Sigiswald Kuijken. Are you there still?
0: Uh huh. I'm sorry. That oh, was just a big Harley going by. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And uh, that, that inspired me a lot also to tackle those pieces, the, the, the recordings I heard from Sigiswald Svoldkirk. And he's a Belgian violist, violinist that plays on a, more like authentic, historical, authentic instruments. And he plays with the old bow and he has more like a scrape, more a scrapey sound than a regular violin player would have more like it would be in that time period, you know, and, and he uses the older instruments too. And he uses a style of playing that's very, uh, uh, it's not influenced so much by romanticism. Like, you know, you hear a lot of the violin players playing this stuff and it's all full with vibratos and uh, romantic, romantic stuff. And they, they didn't have that then. It wasn't, it was very abstract. And this guy plays it like that too. And it's, Uh, cool to hear that and then it gives me gave me inspiration to play it on the guitar because you can't do all that stuff on guitar anyways it's pretty clean cut and that's how it's written
0: next excerpt comes from the double uh, that immediately follows this, this prelude. And um, in this suite uh, which is a little unusual you have the uh, prelude and the, all the regular dance movements and then they're all separated by these doubles. And um, so this is the one that comes right after the prelude. And the cool thing I like about this double is it's this uh, just kind of nice two two part counterpoint uh how you're able to really separate out these two voices into very two very distinct voices yeah
1: I, only, I just i mainly hear it as one voice that piece it's just kind of jumps around but i hear you try to hear the phrases and uh, uh i think that's how i hear as one one big jumping phrase that jumps all over the place uh, with lows and highs, but I don't know if I really hear it as two voices.
0: Hmm, okay, interesting. Well, here it is um, the first double from the violin partita number one. So now we're going to listen to uh, the next excerpt, which is the current movement from uh, this violin partita. And um, in this movement is really kind of a, or sounds to me kind of like a true kind of melody and accompaniment. And mm-hmm. um, it really has this nice, beautiful melodic singing line, you know, against this, Arpeggiated accompaniment, which again, you're really able to separate these two. You know, have the high line really sing. You know, right. against this accompaniment. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, the,
1: uh, a friend of mine told me that he he recorded parts of this piece, and then he uh, he did it with a metronome, and he overlaid them. So he played, say, the first four bars of the first section of the partita. Then he took the first four bars of the, the double and uh, played both parts together uh, and he did that with all the parts and he said uh, it's really cool he said how they they sound good when you overlap them because they are they are exactly, that's the, the, the masterful genius in here is that they just follow exactly the same pattern you know the same progression so you basically you could take the double, and stick it on top of the alamanda, and they will both follow the same chord progressions, and they they will sound good together.
0: Yeah, you know that would be that would be an interesting thing for isn't this, that weird? Yeah, for the yeah. would be an interesting thing for the CGT to do <laughs> <laughs> with distortion. Uh, no, yes, but, uh,
1: <laughs> uh, but uh, I thought of it that way when I was practicing it too because each. They're all the same piece, just in different little forms. But mm-hmm. they all the same melodies, uh, just different rhythms and stuff. So it's really neat, really cool. of my reason for playing this is it's way beyond me I I cannot grasp this music it is so good it's mm-hmm. like so you know I, I cannot understand it uh, I mean you can I can try to analyze it and whatever but the best way for me to understand it is to play it and to feel it right so at least I can get an emotional connection with the music but just in terms of writing it it's like oh boy yeah it's like listening to John McLaughlin
0: of Mahavishnu, you know. Uh, Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I was going to save this quote for when we talked about the Chaconne, but since you just mentioned that, uh, it's it's really related. I was going to read this quote about, you know, from uh, Brahms. So from Brahms Mm -hmm. in a letter to Clara Schumann, he's talking about the uh, Chaconne. Yeah. And kind of this instrument. And he says, on one stave for a small instrument the man writes a whole world of the deepest thoughts and most powerful feelings. If I imagined that I could have created, even conceived the piece, I'm quite certain that the excess of excitement and earth-shattering experience would have driven me out of my mind. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, Bach was, I think he was a very religious man. So I think his, his, mu- his music was very practical. You know, he wrote for the, most of the music he wrote was for church uh, church purposes, or to be played in the church, and uh, uh, I heard that a lot of his, you know, you can kind of tell his, his music was kind of religiously inspired or spiritual. I would call it more spiritually inspired mm-hmm. uh, music. So it, it was maybe it was also part of that day, the, those days. I'm these days. I'm listening a lot to music by Handel. Uh, he he was a contemporary of Bach, and this music is as as beautiful, as genius as it is, as Bach's music, but it doesn't have that uh, uh, spiritual aspect about it. It's a little more worldly or something. So mm-hmm. the Bach has that kind of uh, uh, please help me in there. <laughs> <laughs> God help me. <laughs> and actually, I heard that he wrote that on some of his uh, scores. Uh, <laughs> I don't know which one it is but uh, I read somewhere in a uh, in a book that he wrote uh, Jesus help on some of his <laughs> some of his scores.
0: <laughs> All right. Yeah. So yeah. that the whole um yeah so that um brings us to the next uh Excerpt, which maybe you might have been yelling, "Jesus help me!" On this one, <laughs> um, the it's uh, the uh, Presto, the Presto movement. Um, yes. I have to say, you know, this is an uh, amazing feat of picking. I mean, uh, it's just so rhythmically even with this crystal clear tone, um, and uh, it really, you know, and this one especially, you know, really reminds me of kind of a harpsichord sound yeah. um so yeah uh i don't know you want to talk a little bit about this one
1: but yeah this is one of the first ones i played as well i uh along with the uh the first with the prelude from the first cello suite the chaconne i also had this one in my repertoire as you know the third piece in my that i practiced basically i had heard it play by Sigiswald Kirken on his violin uh I heard the recording. He plays it super fast, and I was like, "Wow, this is—you know—I was a lot younger then. I was in my early thirties, and like anything fast was like, okay, let's tackle this. It's <laughs> fast, so let's let's tackle this fast one. That was basically it, and and I liked it too. I thought it was it was a great uh, sounding, you know, great sounding piece, and, and it it was fun, to to play it. I also played that on some of the tours uh, with the League of. Uh, Crafty guitarists, and actually, I had a couple train wrecks with that one too, because uh, you you start playing fast, and then you have to keep going, or you just <laughs> smash in the wall. <laughs> uh-huh. And I I slammed in the wall a couple times with that one. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, good piece.
0: So the next excerpt, excerpt number eight, the Sarabande from this Partita. And, um, wow, this is so... I mean, uh, Bach just totally uh, switches gears from from the Presto with this one. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very corral-like, um, very beautiful. Yes. Uh, but, you know, while the corrant was kind of like... Uh, sort of a solo singer with a company. But this is like an entire choir to me, yes. you know? Yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. So how did you, I don't know, how did you feel about this one when you approached playing it? Because, you know, when your, your early yeah. 30s, I, I guess talking about your early 30s self, mm-hmm. uh, this is totally different. It might have been, you know, totally boring. It's not fast.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, it was not boring at all. It was
0: just—it
1: was a tough one to to kind of get the the voicings, you know. Where which usually I kind of focus on on one voice, like the, the usually it's the highest voice or the you know the one that needs to come out. And and in this case, that that's what I did. You know, it's it's very very obvious. Da 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 da. You know, the melody in in the top, and just follow that. And of course, there is the three the. Uh, kind of waltz-like uh, feel that you have to keep with the, in three-four, with the one, the one being the strongest beat. So I kind of focused on that and, and tried to not make it too freely, just to kind of keep it in, into that uh, waltz sort of feel—not waltz, but sarabande feeling. Mm-hmm.
0: That was the sarabande. Now we're going to move to the the last movement here in this partita, and um, again, it's a little unusual because when you uh, listen to most of these suites, partitas, and sonatas for solo instruments, uh, the usual thing that Bach does is end these with a jig. And on this particular piece, he ends with a beret. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, it really is a beret. it's it's not a jig at all but um it's uh you know it's much more i guess uh cordial, i guess than a typical jig would be but just as lively um
1: well there is i think there is a jig in, in that partita he calls it the double it's the piece that precedes the beret. Uh it's another double uh, okay. uh, and, and to me that sounds like a jig you know it has a we <Narrative noise> can almost like dance with a little midgets with the flutes on it you know it's a <laughs> uh, almost Irish, Irish thing going on there but uh, so I think there is a jig in there but the bourree is one of the most popular pieces in the classical guitar repertoire so a I tried playing that before on classical guitar, and I had it in my repertoire. And it was interesting to approach it, approach this bourrée with this completely different tuning, and you know had no, it, and it sounds so different in this tuning too. It was it was cool to play it that way. Uh, uh, with less strings, first of all, in in the classical guitar tuning, uh, a lot of these uh, chords that are in the bourrée are played on six strings. Uh, in this case here it, it the, the most notes that you can find together is four notes in this uh, original version
2: uh,
0: mm-hmm. okay so, so did you um, take some of these four note uh, maybe just sort of quadruple stops on violin did you expand these to six or did you just keep them I kept
1: everything as it was so okay. it, it, it's written for that tuning so it, it it's very obvious once you tackle it, too. It's like, okay, this is a position of the court. That's, uh, he obviously, you know, it with a mean violin player himself. So uh, the way he wrote this, you can tell.
0: Okay, so now we come to the meat. This is the <laughs> the main chorus, so I guess. I don't know the, this this monumental, massive chaconne uh, from the uh, Violin Partita Number no. Two in D Minor, BWV ten zero four, and um, yeah, this is one of those uh, massive, monumental piece that kind of all classical musicians measure themselves and are kind of measured by a piece like this. Um, I read you guys the quote from Brahms who did a transcription yes. of this piece for piano left hand. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, the the excerpt that I'm going to play is a little bit more of an extended excerpt because I really wanted the listeners to get a, a just a sense of how this piece works um, and how it evolves and, develops, um, over this, uh, basically a Chaconne is a set of variations over a repeating baseline, um, or harmonic progression. And, uh, the first variation of this excerpt, uh, comes, I don't know exactly how far in it is. A couple minutes, I think, but this is the excerpt that I'm going to play is, uh, before the middle major mode section, um and the very first variation you'll hear is really contains more clear counterpoint than i would have thought possible to be played on a guitar with a pick <laughs> mm-hmm. uh and then it goes into just you know these kind of sections that we were talking about before with the long uh uh pedal tones and all this mm-hmm. kind of and all this kind of stuff yeah so, I mean, how was it tackling this this piece this is a major thing to tackle it's, yeah, a, it's a major yeah. accomplishment for any musician yeah, well
1: first first of all, I have to say something not as personal it's The chaconne is written in three parts. It has three parts: first, a major section, a uh, minor section, then a major, and then back to a minor section. And the first part is the longest, uh, then comes the middle. And then the the last section it gets shorter and shorter, and a lot of speculations have been made, you know, by uh, historians about you know how many bars are there, and maybe the bars signify uh, how old Bach was, or some symbolic things and stuff. Especially the Romantic people were pretty much into that. Uh, I kind of liked the analogy of this piece being like a human's life, where you know it starts. The first, the first part is kind of like someone's youth. And uh, it goes into their, the middle age and then the old age and, and you die. I kind of see it kind of like that. Hmm, that interesting. piece feels like a life cycle to me. Uh, that was the one that spoke to me. So that's the only thing that I really see in it. I'm sure there's a lot more uh, to discover about it. But for me personally, the piece has a long history. I started playing it when I was studying... Uh, with uh, Robert Fripp and, and, and the League of and, and Guitar Craft. And the way I started this piece was we I would attend these very long courses. I was on a three- or a four-month residential course in England. And uh, the way those courses would work is we'd, have, we'd work uh, very intensively for six days a week and then we, we would have one day off. Uh, usually that was a Sunday and people would go to the pub or... People would go on their bikes and head out, just get out of town and get out of the house. Mm-hmm. I would. I lived in Belgium at the time, and I would come and visit the house in England for a period of, say, three or four weeks, then go back home to teach, then for a couple of weeks, then come back. So when I was there, uh, I would use all the time I had to study. Those days off for me felt like I wanted to continue studying, but I didn't want to do the same thing. I wanted to tackle something totally like do something what I wasn't doing the rest of the week. Uh, and the obvious choice was to pick some repertoire or some piece that, that I would start practicing. And the first piece I started practicing was the Chacon. I just started with the first few bars. They went further and further. Uh, uh, I didn't get far because, you know, there was only a couple of days off that I had the chance to practice right. this stuff. Uh, but later on, I, I, I really started digging into it deeper and deeper and, uh, Uh, the League of Crafty Guitarists did a performance tour uh, just after I got married and uh, we had a baby and I was home and I was needed at home so I stayed home while the tour was happening and during that time that I stayed home I took it upon myself to learn this whole piece and memorize it and the next guitar craft course was in Italy shortly after that tour I was talking to you about and I went to that course and uh, during times, sometimes people would get the opportunity to play so I did I played the whole piece <laughs> memorized it and played it and uh, uh, it was something that hadn't been done on those courses be- before because usually it was uh, people playing their own compositions and things like that. but something like this was like whoa somebody's playing classical music yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's 12 minutes long yeah uh, I remember very vividly playing it and I was uh, really scared out of my wits to play that because it was really (laughs) hard and it was the first time ever I played this in front of people and of all people Robert Fripp was sitting right in front of me with a group of 35-40 guitarists so I played it, people stopped eating, they listened and I kind of played it through uh, probably slightly shaky finished the piece walked out and as I closed the door behind me, I heard this amazing uh, noise coming from the room where people were having dinner. It was everybody was stomping on their tables with the forks and knives. You know, like when you have a rock concert and people are stomping their feet and they're uh, on the floor of the arena kind of a thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They want more, 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 more. <laughs> I walked out. But it, it, had, it, it was quite a, a reaction to that piece and uh, kind of stayed with me and stay with me forever. And, and then th- that's how I kind of started playing it and then played it uh, during live performances with the League later on, which was, uh, from the viewpoint of Robert Fripp, was quite a, an amazing thing to do for me because this is a long piece. And we played, people came to see our shows because they wanted to see Robert Fripp play guitar. Instead... Uh, he said uh, he offered me the chance to play this piece by myself (laughs) wow so uh, uh, that kind of got me started on this whole project yeah
0: Okay, so that was Burt Lamb's playing the chaconne from the violin Partita Number no. Two in D Minor, BWV 1004. Um, and so, as always, listeners, I encourage you um, wholeheartedly to go pick up this CD um, and listen to all the pieces all the way through. Especially that chaconne, um, you can hear what uh, what a fantastic job Burt did with it. But and also what a just amazingly mind-blowing piece it is in itself. Um, So we are going to close out the show with uh, kind of an all the cool parts. First, Bert has very kindly agreed to um, give me an exclusive preview of an upcoming track from the forthcoming uh, California guitar trio release. Yeah. And uh, so we're going to d- just talk about that track a little bit and then I'll play the track in its entirety. Um, so, Bert, this track is called Hazardous? Hazardous Z. It's Hazardous a piece that was- Z, okay.
1: Uh, it's a piece that was written by, uh, uh, mostly by Hideo Moria uh, in Japan. He wrote it with the basic ideas together with his friend, a guitar friend that he uh, performs with uh, occasionally. And uh, he presented this piece to Paul and I. He sent us scores of the the melodies, and the, the whole piece was written out and composed. And Paul and I took a look at it, and we kind of totally deformed the piece. I picked up my classical guitar and wrote my own parts on it instead of playing the parts that Hideo wrote, based on what he wrote, of course. But we changed the character of what was a very... Kind of uh, uh, austere piece with very few breathing spaces in it. It was very linear. It was with all 16 notes all the way throughout. We changed that and uh, made some breathing spaces in there and and actually turned it into sort of a, like almost a flamenco style, uh, yeah, you know, Spanish sounding piece, which it totally didn't sound like. It had a Middle Eastern sound. So that that was kind of cool.
0: And um, so usually, uh, you guys are playing three steel string guitars, and there are in fact nylon string guitars on this track. Then,
1: yes, indeed, the main yeah the main part there is a nylon string guitar. You'll you'll hear it very, very uh, distinctly that it's a nylon nylon y- string guitar played with fingers, not a
0: pick. Right, right. And um, one thing I wanted to point out to the listeners um one cool thing, uh, is that. Sort of, uh, I guess, about three quarters of the way through the song, you guys do. There's a part, a circulation part, right? Yes. So this is where. Well, I don't know. Do you, you want to explain this circulation yeah. technique? Yeah, yeah. The circulation technique
1: uh, stems from uh, us attending these guitar craft courses with Robert Fripp. Too, as I explained to you earlier, we during the courses people would sit in a big circle. And uh, we would play together. One of the techniques or uh, exercises that was presented during these courses was for one person to play a note, pass it on to the next person in the, in the circle, and pass it on, and then play it in rapid succession uh, through the circle. So it, it would be passed around very fast. We with the trio we took this idea a little further and uh, uh, started playing Bach preludes, for instance. In this fashion, where I play the first note, Hideo the, Paul the second one, and Hideo the third one in rapid succession. You can also hear this in the Toccata and Fugue uh, of us in a lot of pieces on all of our. Lines. It's kind of become a, a, a staple of the trio. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Uh, yeah, and, and listeners, if you want to hear a great example of an entire track of this, um, you should really listen to the the prelude they do from the Bach. Uh, prelude Fugue you and allegro bwv 998 um off of uh Invitation. White,
2: invocation invocation whitewater yeah a whitewater, whitewater. yeah
0: whitewater yes. the, their album whitewater and um if you want to compare the two actually you can go back and listen to all the cool parts number one the very first episode uh where paul galbraith i uh, played an excerpt of paul galbraith playing this piece so you can hear it sort of in its more original form than hear how the California guitar tree or do it in this circulation manner. It's, it's really cool.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So anyway, um, Hazardous Z, uh, do you know when this, uh, the new album will be coming out?
1: Yeah, we're looking at September right now. Uh, the The whole album is being mastered. It should be done this week and the artwork is finished or nearly finished. We're just wrapping up the credits. Uh, and the thank yous and all the details that need to go on the album and then uh, we'll just send it off to the to the label and to the printing the printing company and we should have it uh, hopefully ready by September we're really excited we've been we've been working on this for a long time and it's now with all original pieces, there's no covers, no classical pieces on there at all this time so it's quite different, quite different for us
0: Right. well uh i'm looking forward to that and uh listeners uh look for that in september and also the california guitar trio have many many other great albums um to check out i'd recommend any of them really um so yeah so we're going to take out the show on this new track hazardous z and um thank you so so much bert for coming on the show
1: Tony, thank you so much for taking time to interview me and, and for supporting our music. Uh, I hope we, we meet sometime soon.
0: Yeah, that would be great. And uh, yeah, it's, it's man, totally my pleasure. All right, so we will now play Hazardous Z from the forthcoming California Guitar Trio album, Andromeda. And uh, we will see you on the flip side. Hey, performers, performing ensembles, and composers. All the Cool Parts Podcast wants your music for All the Cool Parts Idol. If you're an emerging artist with a good quality recording, and you'd like All the Cool Parts Podcast to share it with the world, please email sound files and other details to allthecoolparts at gmail.com. Help me share your music with the world. And that's going to do it for this week's All the Cool Parts Number sixteen. Uh if you'd like to send us an email and uh please send us an email, our address is all at gmail.com. You can visit the website at all You can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Anthony Landman, and you can check out my website at anthonyjosephlandman.com. And we want to send another big thanks to Burt Lambs for coming on the show and talking about his CD, Nascent, and for the exclusive preview of the next California Guitar Trio album, Andromeda. And I'm going to send you guys out on the very end of the Bach Chaconne, and we will see you next time.